Hello everyone and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I am your host, Tony, and today we're going to look at Super Mario Land 2, a side-scrolling and sometimes vertical-scrolling platformer, developed and published by Nintendo and released for the Game Boy in 1992. We're going to be talking about that in just a minute, but first, as is customary, just a little bit of housekeeping. This is episode number 28, and I am pumped to be here. I hope all of you are as well. I truly do want to continue to build a community around the podcast and classic gaming in general. And if you'd like to reach out, there are a couple of ways you can do that. I have an email address, which is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com. I also have a Twitter account with the handle at ClassicGamingT. So if you'd like to reach out, provide feedback, suggestions, recommendations, or just talk about classic gaming and technology in general, let me know. I am definitely interested in hearing what you think. For anybody who may be new, welcome. I do just want to go briefly over the anatomy of an episode because, for the most part, every single one of our episodes follows a very similar format and structure. We will always start by talking about history, the history of the game in question, the historical context of its creation, and then we dive into a pseudo-review. And I say pseudo-review because it's not like we assign a quantitative value. We don't assign a numeric ranking from 1 to 10 or or 5 stars or anything like that. But we do talk about every game from several different perspectives. We will talk about the graphics. How does the game look? The sound and music. How does the game sound? The narrative and or story, if the game has one. Playability and controls. And the overall feel. What does the game feel like to play today versus when it was released 20, 30, however many years ago? We do all of that in order to reach a verdict as far as how the game holds up today. And to do that, we assign each game to one of several categories. At the very top of our list is the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If a game reaches the Pantheon, you know it is that darn good. It is a certifiable classic. You should play that game today. It has not aged at all. It is just as good now as what it was when it was released. Just beyond the Pantheon are our Golden Oldies. These are games that are still really good experiences. I still highly recommend you play them but they're just a little bit below Pantheon level. Still very worthwhile experiences, especially if you have nostalgia for the game or you love the genre in which the game resides. Go for it, play it. You will not be sorry. Moving on beyond our golden oldies are the mediocre mentions. Here's where we get into the game's that I cannot recommend to the general population. That doesn't mean you're going to have a bad time necessarily. If you have a particular fondness for the genre, you may still have a good time with the game. But generally speaking, these games have aged a little bit too much, or they may have had a couple of issues to begin with. I cannot recommend them to the majority of the population. And then beyond the mediocre mentions, we get to the footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them, so you don't have to. I cannot in good conscience recommend these titles to anybody today. They have either aged incredibly poorly, or they may not have been all that great to begin with. With that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the game of the day. That is Super Mario Land 2.
Super Mario Land 2 is a side-scrolling platform experience developed and published by Nintendo and released for the Game Boy in 1992. Before we can talk about Super Mario Land 2, though, we do have to take a step back and talk about its predecessor, the original Super Mario Land, released as a launch title for the Nintendo Game Boy back in 1989. For anybody who may have been listening to the podcast for a little bit, you may recognize that we actually did an episode on Super Mario Land around a month-ish ago, a little bit over a month ago, I believe. So we're going to keep this section talking about Super Mario Land 1 relatively high level. We go into much greater depth when uh, within that Super Mario Land original episode. So if anybody is interested, and that's actually back episode 23, so around five episodes ago or so. Uh, so if you're interested in learning more about Super Mario Land 1, feel free to take a listen to that one. We are going to keep it full enough so that anybody who didn't listen to that episode can at least appreciate the whole historical context, but not as deep as what we did in that dedicated episode. Anyway, getting back to the story at hand, Super Mario Land, the original, was created by Nintendo's Research and Development One, or R&D One, group. That group was led by a man named Gunpei Yokoi. Yokoi had been a longtime employee of Nintendo. He had started back in Nintendo's playing card manufacturing factories back in 1965. For anybody who may not be aware, Nintendo was not always a video game company. They actually have existed for well over 100 years at this point, and they got a lot of their early business selling playing cards. So that was what Nintendo was doing when Gunpei Yokoi had joined the company. In his spare time, he created a prototype toy-like device, which was a mechanical arm that drew the attention of then-Nintendo president Hiroshi Yamachi. Yamachi believed that the prototype mechanical arm could potentially sell on the toy market, so he asked Yokoi to develop the prototype into a full-fledged toy. Yokoi did so, creating the Ultra Hand, which was a toy that would go on to sell over 1 million units over the holiday season. And that event is what began a shift at Nintendo from purely a playing card manufacturer into a broader company, with toys being a new product line at the company. Yokoi himself would go on to invent and create a number of other toys for Nintendo over the years, and it was because of his inventive nature that when Nintendo decided to get into the video game market in 1974, Yokoi was tapped to be one of its earliest game designers. Around that same time, Shigeru Miyamoto was hired into the company. Miyamoto, as many of you might recognize, is the legendary game designer who would go on to create such iconic game series as Super Mario, The Legend of Zelda, Star Fox, and Pikmin. At the time, though, Miyamoto was simply the newest member of Yokoi's team, working on various tasks in support of Yokoi's creations. Miyamoto's rise to fame would come in 1980, when Nintendo was in a bit of a financial bind brought about by overestimating projections surrounding the North American launch of their newest arcade title, Radar Scope. Expected to be a big seller, Nintendo produced 3,000 cabinets of Radar Scope to sell in North America, but because of shipping delays, by the time the game reached North American shores, Interest had waned, and only 1,000 cabinets, or around one-third of the total produced cabinets, were sold to arcade distributors. So Nintendo was looking for a way to recoup their losses, and Miyamoto came up with the concept to convert the unsold arcade machines into a different game, starring a mustachioed man who would need to rescue a princess from the clutches of a giant gorilla. Along the way, that man would need to jump over barrels, avoid fire, climb girders and ladders, and ultimately save the damsel in distress. 
that game would become Donkey Kong, and that man would become Mario, two of Miyamoto's earliest creations that would grow to legendary status as time went on. Miyamoto's success with Donkey Kong would launch his career, allowing him to design and work on a number of other video games, including the creation of the original Super Mario Bros. back in 1985. Along the way, Miyamoto and Gunpei Yokoi would develop a close mentoring relationship, with Yokoi often providing advice to Miyamoto to assist with the development of his titles. With Mario being a huge success, Nintendo believed that having a Mario title would be instrumental in launching any new consoles they were planning to release. In the late 80s, two new consoles were in the process of being created. One was a portable system called the Game Boy, while the other would become the Super Nintendo Entertainment System, or SNES, which was Nintendo's 16-bit advanced console designed to eventually replace the 8-bit Nintendo Entertainment System. So with two consoles in development, Miyamoto was tasked with developing early titles for the Super Nintendo, including Super Mario World, which would become a launch title for the system. With Miyamoto's focus on the Super Nintendo launch, the task of bringing Mario to the Game Boy would fall to Gunpei Yokoi's R&D 1 team, which incidentally was the same team that created the Game Boy itself. Yokoi had a long history in developing hardware and actual physical products. He had worked on the original, or actually conceptualized and invented, the original Game & Watch back in the late 70s, early 80s. He also was the person that invented the directional pad for controllers. So he has had a long history in hardware creation. The Game Boy was yet another one of his creations, or at least his team's creation. So the efforts of Yukori and the R&D 1 team would eventually result in the release of Super Mario Land as a launch title for the Game Boy in 1989. The team took great efforts to both preserve core elements of a Mario adventure as created by Miyamoto, such as the general side-scrolling platform gameplay loop and general world structure, but also evolved the formula, sending Mario to Sarasaland as opposed to the Mushroom Kingdom, having him save Princess Daisy instead of Princess Peach, and introducing a number of new enemies specific to the lands he was visiting, all of which were based in some capacity on real-world ancient civilizations such as Egypt and China. Shrinking a traditional television-sized Mario adventure down into a form that could be played on a console in your pocket did require some compromises, and the game would be one of the shorter Mario adventures ever created, clocking it at only 12 levels across four lands. Graphics would similarly be simplified, with the overall presentation shrinking down Mario and the game world size in order to fit on a Game Boy screen. That said, despite being a simplified version of a Mario game, Super Mario Land still sold extremely well, even outselling Super Mario Bros. 3, which was widely considered to be one of the best NES games ever created, and certainly at that point was the most complex Mario adventure released to date. With the success of Super Mario Land, it is only natural to assume that there would eventually be a sequel, and that's exactly what would happen with work beginning in earnest in November of 1991. So with Gunpei Yokoi once again acting as the producer for the title, a team was formed to create the new Mario entry, which would once again not have Shigeru Miyamoto's involvement. Director duties for this title would fall to Hiroji Kiyotake, who had just finished working on both Dr. Mario and Metroid 2 for the Nintendo Entertainment System. Early on, the team wanted to take a different approach to this particular Mario title, and in particular didn't want to be bound by the framework and structure that typified a Mario adventure. 
With Super Mario Land, the R&D1 team began experimenting with deviations to the Mario formula, but for the most part, they pretty much stuck to what worked. This was very much a shrinking, a miniaturization of a traditional Super Mario adventure, albeit with some additional elements or some slight alterations thrown in there. With Super Mario Land 2, however, the early goal was to push the envelope way further than what they had done with Super Mario Land 1. So, they created brand new enemies, there was a brand new art style developed, there were various other gameplay mechanics that were put in place that would make the title a wholly unique experience, entirely different than the traditional structure and look of a Mario title. So, the team went off, they worked on all of these elements, they had all of this evolutionary content built into the game, they showed a prototype to Nintendo staff, and the feedback just wasn't all that great. Most of the individuals who saw the prototype basically came back and said, you know what, this doesn't feel like a Mario title at all. It's not that the game was necessarily poorly designed, it just wasn't a Mario game. The R&D1 team had actually pushed the envelope a little bit too far. So the development team went back and forth with the feedback and trying to wrestle with what they were going to do. They eventually agreed that eh, they may have pushed things just a bit too far, so they decided to scale back some of the changes to better map to what people thought of when they heard the phrase Mario Platformer. With the design for Super Mario World, which was the Super Nintendo version of Mario that Miyamoto had been working on, that became the general framework that they most closely tried to align with. So let's talk about Super Mario World a bit, just so that everybody has the same expectations or the same level set uh, understanding of what that game was all about. Super Mario World would release as a launch title for the Super Nintendo system. This was the game that Miyamoto was working on when the original Super Mario Land was being created. And the game itself would serve as an evolution to Super Mario Bros. 3. So Super Mario Bros. 3 had introduced an overworld kind of concept. They added new power-ups. You had the ability to fly. There were a lot of different enemies. You had much larger enemies in some areas. And just the overall system was much evolved from the earlier Super Mario titles. Super Mario World would similarly evolve from Super Mario Bros. 3. New items would be added, new power-ups such as the cape, which is probably one of the most influential power-ups there. But the biggest change was the introduction of Yoshi. Yoshi is, for anybody who doesn't know, a dinosaur who will literally eat anything and everything in his path. Interestingly, Yoshi was originally intended to be included in the original Nintendo version of Super Mario, but couldn't be included due to technical limitations. With the Super Nintendo, that was no longer an issue because technically it was a much more powerful system. Beyond that, there were some additions or other additions made to the game. There was a spin move that was added, which could be used to break blocks as well as bounce on certain hazards. And by the way, if anybody ever wants to see the spin move utilized insanely, look up some of the Mario troll levels or the hacks and Mario Maker levels that are just designed to be absolutely ridiculously difficult, and you will see people bouncing on stuff that should not be bounceable, and they're really using some of those controls to great effect. That is not me, by the way, that I am I am not one of those guys that looks for the hardest levels ever to try to beat them, but there are plenty of people out there that do and do awesome. So if you want to see those controls in action, I suggest you do a search for some of those levels 
and you see some insane kinds of things. Anyway, across Super Mario World, there would be 96 levels in total, so a dramatic expansion overall to the overall uh, Mario formula, and there would also be secret levels and paths out of individual levels. So Super Mario World was a big deal. It was a gigantic game. It was the natural evolution of what had come before it, but it really turned things up and it pushed the envelope forward as it relates to a Mario game. So the team behind Super Mario Land 2 took Super Mario World and they used it as the general framework for their game. They redesigned the Super Mario Land 2 that they had gone a little bit too far with. They started to redesign that. So they pulled in some of the elements from Super Mario World into their title, while at the same time evolving the original non-standard concepts originally introduced in Super Mario Land 1. This design would manifest itself in multiple ways throughout the development of the title. Specifically, the game inherited the overworld concept from Super Mario World, as well as the general art style, albeit with its own unique flair, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. There was also the, the newly introduced spin jump move that Super Mario Land 2 would pull directly from Super Mario World. At the same time, though, there were a number of elements from Super Mario Land that were improved upon. And let's talk about those specifically, because this is the sequel to the original, obviously. And as you would expect with any sequel, generally speaking, the teams try to do bigger, better, more amazing things. There was definitely evolution here between the original Super Mario Land and Super Mario Land 2. So let's go line by line. We're going to start by talking about the graphics. These were much more zoomed in and detailed. So for anybody who played Super Mario Land 1, the graphics or the screen, it was basically like taking a television screen's worth of information and miniaturizing it and shrinking it down onto a Game Boy screen. What that meant is that the overall zoom ratio, for lack of a better term, was pretty much preserved on the Game Boy screen. But what that ultimately ended up causing is graphics that looked really small. And yes, there was some detail there, and I think the team did a good job with trying to create the detail or show the detail given those limitations, but everything seemed really, really small. In Super Mario Land 2, because the team had become much more familiar with Game Boy development and what they could actually do, they changed that zoom perspective. They actually zoomed in closer so that when you're looking at Mario or the other characters in the game world or just the game world itself, things feel much more like the size that you would expect from a Mario adventure, specifically Super Mario World 2. The only difference is you didn't have quite as much screen real estate. So you were really zoomed in on the details or you were really zoomed in on the experience that just meant more scrolling. It didn't necessarily mean a lack of detail. So they really changed the graphics as they moved from Mario Land 1 to Mario Land 2. On the controls front, there was definitely a shift, and they introduced a more traditional feeling of inertia to Mario's movement. And we talked about this before with our Mario Land 1 episode, but when you move in a Mario game, there is a general assumption that you will have some sort of momentum or inertia as you're running around or jumping around, and you're not going to come to a hard stop as soon as you hit the ground. You kind of have to press in the opposite direction in order to actually stop the forward movement, or at least stop it quicker. In Mario Land 1, 
Uh, there really wasn't much inertia or momentum there. It's kind of like you dropped and you stopped on a dime, which just to me didn't really feel like a traditional Mario adventure. For Mario Land 2, they improved upon this and they added more of that traditional momentum, inertial kind of feeling. It still wasn't quite normal, meaning it didn't really feel exactly like what I had come to appreciate in the NES Mario games, but it was definitely closer. There were also a number of power-ups that would be included that would allow you to jump higher in Mario Land 2 than what prior titles would allow. And that was actually designed that way to make the game more accessible for individuals who had difficulty pressing diagonal directions on their control pad. So rather than having to be super precise with the diagonal movement, they allowed you to actually jump higher, which gave you a little bit more of a window of opportunity to move around. So just a little accessibility thing there, considering that there were a lot of people that owned Game Boys. This Game Boys went beyond the traditional gamer. So they wanted to make sure the titles were a little bit more accessible than what the more hardcore, for lack of a better term, gaming experiences were at the time. Uh, they also added, by the way, the ability to move vertically in a level. And what that means is rather than just having side to side movement, there were some levels and some sections of levels where you actually could move vertically beyond the screen's length. And it was all very natural, smooth scrolling. So in Mario Land 2, you were able to move up and down and left and right, depending on the level, obviously. In Super Mario Land 1, you were pretty much just restricted to a single screen's height, and then you'd be able to move left to right. So that was the way or one of the ways that they improved or added additional functionality given some of the newer Mario experiences that had been released on both the NES and the Super Nintendo. This now was making its way into the Game Boy versions of the game as well. As far as the world and level design, this was a much more traditional setup. It was a much larger game in comparison to the original Mario Land. In Mario Land 1, there were four lands, three levels each, 12 total levels. And at the end of each level, you had the opportunity to get to a mini game, depending on which exit from the level you took. You could either go into a top exit, which required a little bit of additional tricky platforming, or a bottom exit. If you went into the top exit, that would allow you to play a mini game that would potentially get you some additional lives that you would then be able to store and use as you progress throughout the adventure. In Super Mario Land 2, the team would create six different lands with a total of 32 levels across those lands. So a much larger experience, much more akin to what you would expect to see from a full console television version of Super Mario. They also included a casino minigame area based on the number of coins that you've collected. There was additional minigame elements included, so there were more variety as far as the minigames that were offered. There were also some hidden stages that branched off from certain levels, and these were semi-hidden, so it wasn't like you could automatically get there. You had to go off the beaten path to find some of these hidden stages that would then lead you to some areas which had some significant numbers of one-ups or power-ups or things like that. So they added, they took a lot of those elements from Super Mario World and they condensed them and miniaturized them to a degree and put them into Super Mario Land 2, which dramatically improved on the overall world structure and level design of its predecessor. There were also new power-ups. We mentioned the power-ups and their ability to jump a little bit higher, but specifically, the power-ups that were included in Mario Land 2 
Of course, you have to have the Super Mushroom. You can't have a Mario game without the Super Mushroom. Actually, I don't even know that there was a Mario game without the Super Mushroom. So that was certainly included. They also included the Fire Flower, which, interestingly, the original Mario Land had done away with the Fire Flower. They instead used a Super Ball Flower. Uh, That Super Ball Flower was once again now thrown away and now replaced with the traditional Fire Flower in Mario Land 2. Uh, They also included a carrot that could turn Mario into a bunny, which would allow him to float through levels pretty much indefinitely. And there was also one level that utilized a spacesuit that allowed Mario to fly in zero-gravity environments, most notably space. Beyond design elements that were either borrowed or evolved, there were also a number of new features and innovations that were created specifically for Super Mario Land 2. So in what I believe was a first from a storyline perspective, Super Mario Land 2 was designed as a true direct sequel to the original title, picking up pretty much where the first game left off. Most Mario adventures are standalone despite having numerical entries. So if we think back to the first three Super Mario Brothers games on the NES, Super Mario Brothers was in the Mushroom Kingdom, you're navigating around, you're doing all sorts of stuff. Super Mario Brothers 2, which we're talking about the North American release of Super Mario Brothers 2, was an entirely different experience, entirely different adventure. Even though it was part two, it didn't really follow, per se, from part one. And similarly, part three didn't follow from part two. There was really no connection there other than existing in the same world or the same overall lore. So Super Mario Land 2, however, would directly follow from Super Mario Land 1. And the narrative that's provided for the game in the game's instruction manual and on the box basically says this is happening right after Mario returns from Sarasaland and he finds out that something bad has happened to his castle and now he has to go off and do something to save it and to get it back to him. So he or the game was a direct sequel, not just numerically, but storyline wise, it directly followed the original Mario Land 1. Also in Mario Land 2, There was no princess to save. In most, if not all, Mario titles, Mario is going on an adventure in service to somebody else. And most of the time, that is the princess, whoever that princess might be. In this game, though, he's chasing after six golden coins in order to reclaim his own castle that had been stolen from him while he was adventuring in Sarasaland. So in this way, the game would be much more self-centered. This is a personal adventure for Mario. It's not about a damsel in distress. Um, There were some graphics and character choices as well that can best be described as progressive for a Mario game, I guess, or at least certainly outside the box. The biggest example here is the Jason Voorhees-like hockey-masked enemy with a knife sticking out of his head in the Pumpkin Land levels. Uh, Not nearly as cute as your typical Koopa Troopa, and I'm actually surprised that an enemy with that design was going to be able to make it into a Mario game. Definitely something that you would not see in the traditional Mario adventure. Though, with all of that said, the biggest and most lasting change that would come about as a result of Super Mario Land 2 was the introduction of a new antagonist, an enemy that would serve as Mario's nemesis, not just in this game, but in countless adventures to follow. A yin to Mario's yang. That's right, we are talking about Wario. So Super Mario Land 2 was the first game that Wario appeared in, and he was designed from the beginning to be kind of the bad version of Mario. Interestingly, the name Wario comes from the Japanese word for bad, which is Warui, 
And the design team had an ingenious idea when they were trying to create this bad Mario, so to speak. They thought, well, wouldn't it be cool if we look at Mario, and Mario has an M on his cap because his first name begins with an M. And the development team said, well, what if we flipped it? If we flipped the M vertically, that would become a W, which fits in with the whole concept of what we're going with from a Japanese language perspective. And also, we kind of take the back half of Mario's name, add it to the W, that would then become synonymous with Wario. So I thought that was ingenious that they did that. And apparently that wasn't something that was 100% planned right from the beginning. It was almost like, a, hey, let's give it a shot, see if that works. And they started getting some feedback from others that basically said, wow, that's that's awesome. You guys got to keep that. So they did. And that was how Wario was created. I will say there were some stories that I read, and I have no idea how true these are. But some stories suggested that the creation of Wario was actually a commentary on the fact that the R&D1 team were upset that they were working on a game with a main character that they didn't originally create. Like I said, I have no way to prove if that was true or not, but I did find it interesting that during one interview with the design and development team shortly after the game's release, they were asked to sum up Super Mario Land 2 in a couple words. And you know how sometimes they do this. They're like, hey, if you can sum up everything into a word or three words or less, what would you say? What What is the main takeaway from this experience? So they asked all the development team. And one of the individuals, the director of the game, Hiroji Kiyotaki, had said that the takeaway from this game is that it is Wario's big debut. Didn't even say anything about Mario or his adventure or anything else, but his focus was on Wario. Now, the interesting thing there is that he also designed the character Wario, so there might have been a little bit of a bias there. But at the same time, I could see where there might be a, uh, a little bit of, well, hey, Wario is our creation, so that's what I want to focus on. I don't necessarily want to focus on the things that came before or that the things that were the brainchild of somebody else, even if they were the brainchild of somebody as legendary and influential as Miyamoto. So once again, I have no proof there, though I do think it's interesting that Super Mario Land 3, which would also eventually be developed by the R&D1 team, rather than being named Super Mario Land 3, would be named Wario Land, and then kind of the byline or the, or the tagline is Super Mario Land 3. So the next game would entirely focus on Wario as your main character. So maybe there is something there. I don't know. I have no way to, to prove it, but I did find it interesting. Now, the thing is that the game itself wouldn't really delve into the true origins of Wario's hate for Mario or the reason why they're rivals. But there was a later comic that would be published in Nintendo Power that would tackle that very topic. And the way they did that was they took this comic or they created this comic and it was effectively a retelling of Super Mario Land 2, albeit with more backstory. So the story goes like this. Mario and Wario were childhood friends, but Wario felt that Mario was always trying to tease him and bully him or force him to play cowboys, though when they played cowboys, Mario would never let Wario play as the sheriff. Mario always needed to be the sheriff, and Wario would always be kind of the side character. And that manifested itself into a lifelong hate, which would eventually drive Wario to take Mario's castle while he was away adventuring in Sarasaland. That comic would eventually end with Mario victorious, though once again falling into his old ways by suggesting that they play cowboys, with Mario once again acting as the sheriff, as Wario still sits in the background, continuing to lust for revenge. Now, that story, 
And, and as I was thinking through it and, and reading it and kind of feeling how I felt about it, it kind of portrays Mario as a bit of a jerk. I mean, I'm sure there was a degree of Wario imagining some of these slights that may or may not have been intended. I'm assuming probably more on the not intended side, but I don't know that Mario is a totally sympathetic character here. I can kind of see Wario's point. So that's the that's the origin, or that is as Nintendo Power described it, that is the origin of Mario and Wario's lifelong rivalry. Turning our attention to the sound effects and music for the title, the first thing that somebody will likely notice is that the sounds in the title simply sound a little bit different than a traditional Mario adventure. According to the game's composer, Kazumi Totaka, this was an intentional shift. He was interviewed back in 1992, and he explained that the team didn't want players to experience sound effects and music similar to Super Mario World, which was a huge, colorful, advanced 16-bit game. And then, having experienced that gigantic adventure, they didn't want them to become disappointed that the game that they were playing was limited in comparison, both in terms of screen size and overall technical capability. Totaka believed that there could be a psychological dissonance happening where they hear a sound effect set that is exactly the same as the bigger console-based 16-bit version of Mario and draw a negative association because they're not experiencing the rest of that big console adventure. So Tataka decided to make a more unique auditory experience for the game in an attempt to avoid that potentially negative association. Now, just a brief tangent here. Tataka is an interesting guy just looking at his career and, and just looking at him himself. Uh, he would become an incredibly prolific composer for Nintendo, working on a number of titles across a bunch of Nintendo properties, just a, a laundry list, like Super uh, Mario Brothers titles, future Mario titles beyond this point, Legend of Zelda entries, Super Smash Brothers, Animal Crossing. He was incredibly prolific. And his musical stylings are so well-known amongst the Nintendo team that the character of K.K. Slider, who is a traveling musician found in the Animal Crossing series, is said to have been based on Tataka. He's also, by the way, the person responsible for Yoshi's voice. So he is the voice actor for Yoshi. Um, also interesting, he loves embedding a melody that he originally wrote for Mario Paint, which is known as Tataka's song, into nearly every game that he's worked on. And typically he hides this song, this brief snippet of music, in every game he works on in an Easter egg somewhere. And oftentimes to get to those Easter eggs, you have to do something that is completely non-obvious to get it to play. But I think it's always interesting when you hear about these little insider stories, so to speak, where somebody is hiding some Easter eggs in the games that's kind of unique and personal to them. So I always find that kind of stuff interesting. Anyway, eventually, all of the game's pieces would come together and Super Mario Land 2 would release on the Game Boy in November of 1992 to near-universal acclaim. Critics would praise the game's graphics and numerous improvements over the original Super Mario Land, with some saying that the new title was demonstrably better than its predecessor in nearly every conceivable way. Gamers would similarly love the title, with Super Mario Land 2 becoming one of the top-selling games for several months following its release, en route to selling over 11 million units over the course of its lifetime, which was good enough to become the fifth best-selling Game Boy game of all time. Despite Miyamoto's lack of involvement, again, the R&D 1 team once again proved that they knew how to create a fun, quality platforming experience. 
The game would also go on to be re-released on the Nintendo 3DS Virtual Shop in 2011 and would spawn a direct sequel. Unlike most Mario sequels, though, that particular title would have a new starring character, Mario's nemesis, Wario. The creation of Wario for Super Mario Land 2 is probably its most impactful legacy, as Wario would go on to both star and act in supporting roles in a huge number of titles over the years, gaining a number of fans in the process and becoming himself a bit of a pop culture icon, albeit not quite as well known as Mario. Super Mario Land 2 represented both an evolution of the Mario Land concept as well as the evolution of the R&D 1 team. The original Mario Land title was released as a launch game for the Game Boy, and it was obvious that the team wasn't yet sure how to use all of the capabilities of the system. With Super Mario Land 2, the team used several years' worth of additional Game Boy development experience to introduce significant improvements over its predecessor, while at the same time continuing to add new elements and innovations into the traditional Mario formula. That combination of new features and gameplay evolution, coupled with the debut of a sensational new character, would create a beloved experience that continues to remain relevant to this day. going to transition to talk about how the game feels to play today versus when it was originally released. So Super Mario Land 2, just as a refresher, is a side-scrolling platformer, also some vertical scrolling elements included, that was released back in 1992. And as you would expect, you control Mario, and you return to your castle after adventuring in Sarasaland during Super Mario Land 1, and you find it occupied by your childhood nemesis, Wario. And it is time to take it back. So let's talk about the overall structure of the game. There is an overworld, similar to Super Mario World, where all of the different lands are connected. Now, there is a new twist here, because every single land, other than Mario's castle, which is blocked off by needing six coins to access... Every single land is accessible from the very beginning of the game. It's truly an open world map, not necessarily an open world like you would think of from, say, a Skyrim or an RPG kind of experience, but it's open in that you can go anywhere you want at any point in time. You could even back out of lands if you've started down a path and you reach a point where it's a little bit too difficult or you want to try something else. Just back out and go to a different area, go to a different level, and you can pretty much do that. Now, within each of the lands, each of the levels are gated, meaning that inside the lands, most of the levels are sequential, and you have to progress from the first one to the second one to the third one in order to eventually complete that land. But as far as how you access those lands, that is entirely open and up to you. Um, and there are a bunch of different lands included in the game to explore. So let's go through them each briefly just so that you all have awareness of what they are. So there is a tree zone. That is a land where you're navigating treetops. And each of the lands, by the way, have enemies that are specific to the land. So in the trees, you're going to see things like birds and bugs and other flying kinds of things. There's then a zone called Macro Zone, which in this one, you're small and everything else is big. So you'll be fighting giant ants and other bugs that are much oversized in comparison to you walking around the game world. So it's a little bit of the kind of mini 
Mario in a bigger land kind of concept. There's a turtle zone, which you actually have to be swallowed by a turtle to access, which is kind of cool. They, these levels are all water themed and there's some underwater sections and you just have to navigate that area because effectively you're inside a turtle at that point. There is the pumpkin zone. That is the spooky land. So this is where you're going to be fighting ghosts and you see all the booze around that you have to avoid and make sure you're, you have the not face them if you want them to come at you or face them if you want them to stop. That's traditional for every single Mario title for the most part. And then this is also where you encounter that Jason Voorhees hockey mask with a knife in his head enemy that we talked about a little bit earlier. So this is kind of like if there were a Halloween zone in the game, this would be the Halloween zone. There's also a Mario zone, which is kind of like a sort of toy box kind of environment. It's basically like a mechanical Mario doll kind of thing where you enter a bunch of different levels. One of the things I do want to mention with this one, which I thought was awesome in one of the levels in the Mario zone, there are these blocks that look like Lego blocks. They're called N and B blocks. And you see the logo N and B and ampersand B on those blocks. And you might, you might think, well, what the heck is that? And the fact is that Nintendo back in the sixties had created a line of Lego-like blocks in order to compete with Lego. Those blocks were called N and B blocks. So I thought it was an awesome callback to Nintendo's legacy that they included those in the one game level, and you could kind of see how how Nintendo had advanced from becoming from being just a toy company into what it would eventually become in the video game market. But I always love those little little touches that a company puts in that pays respect to or or creates an homage to their prior experiences or their prior products or just their overall legacy. So I thought that was an awesome touch to include. There is also a space zone, which is where you can use your astronaut suit and fly about the entire final stage of that zone. And flying, it's literally flying. You you kind of float up and down. There is no gravity to speak of so you press up down and you navigate a world full of obstacles and try to not get hit as you're working through that game world and then the final zone so to speak is wario's castle this is the the castle that mario used to inhabit that wario took from him and that we have to get back over the course of the game so across those zones there are a bunch of different levels and each zone I think each zone, maybe not every single zone, but almost every zone at a minimum had at least one level that contained a secret exit that would allow you to progress through a bonus level. And each of those bonus levels would have some sort of power-ups or additional extra lives that you'd be able to get in order to make the rest of your adventure a little bit easier. Each of the zones also culminates in a boss fight. And those are pretty straightforward, typical uh, Mario boss fights where you have to bounce on their head three times. There's a couple that deviate from that formula. But for the most part, it's your very traditional kind of Mario boss fight. So nothing too crazy there. There is also a casino and minigame location located within the game world where you can spend coins to potentially win lives and power-ups. So this is where you walk into an area, there's like four pipes, and each pipe has a differing number of coins that you're able to spend, and then depending on what you spend, which pipe you choose, that will then lead to one of several minigames, and the values for those minigames will be increased the more money or the more coins that you spend. 
you can hold a maximum of 999 coins. So that is the highest uh, pipe or the, the most expensive pipe that gives you the most possible chance of winning some a ton of lives. So you could win up to like 50 lives in that one if you spend 999 coins on it. Now, that being said, and kind of a natural uh, follow on from that is that in this game, coins do not give you extra lives directly. Normally in a Mario game, or at least most of the time in Mario games, you collect 100 coins that gives you an extra life. In Super Mario Land 2, that doesn't happen. You're collecting coins in order to potentially spend them at this casino minigame area. So you just accumulate them for the purpose of playing that casino minigame kind of uh, area. And I, I did, by the way, for the purposes of this, I did collect 999 coins to see what that overall payout was. And like I said, you can win a ton of extra lives there. Definitely helpful as you move throughout the game. Otherwise, this is pretty typical Mario gameplay. You jump on the individual creature heads to defeat them. If you kill 100 creatures, you do get an extra life. So that's kind of the way they flipped it around a little bit, where rather than basing extra lives on you collecting coins directly, if you defeat 100 enemies, you will gain an extra life. So I thought that was a nice touch, a nice way to, to include a way to get additional lives while playing the game, but not necessarily tie it to the coins since the coins were going to be used for a different purpose in this particular title. Similar to Super Mario Land 1, each level has two exits, not counting the secret exits that are in some of the levels, but each level has two exits. If you go down to the very easily accessible bottom exit, you just move on to the next level, no, no big deal. If you hit a bell that is located above the exit. That bell will allow you to play a mini game after each of the levels that you hit the bell. That's where you can win additional power-ups or lives. And in a nice touch, there are several different mini games that you could potentially get. I'm not sure if those mini games are tied to the level or if they are simply randomized, but the overall number of mini games is increased. I believe in Super Mario Land 1, there was only one minigame type that was included. In here, there's there's a good handful of minigames that you could potentially play. Also, in each of the levels, there is a mid-level checkpoint, which is definitely helpful. There are some games that do not have any sort of checkpoints, and you have to restart all the way from the beginning. Hey, that's part of design, and different games are designed differently, but this is a very traditional kind of Mario adventure. There is a mid-level checkpoint included in almost all of the levels. We did talk about power-ups a little bit earlier, so I don't want to spend too much time going into more detail here, but just to go over the list of what we have going in this game, you do have the Super Mushroom, which makes you bigger. There is a 1-Up Heart, which is similar to Super Mario Land. The reason behind that is normal Mario Adventure games or Mario games in general, the 1-Up is a mushroom. It's a differently colored mushroom than the Power-Up Mushroom or than the Super Mushroom. But on a Game Boy screen, you can't really distinguish colors. So rather than use a mushroom that should look identical to the Super Mushroom, they've decided to go with a heart that floats on the screen that you collect for your 1-Up in this game. And that was the same exact way they did it in Super Mario Land. I think that makes perfect sense given the limitations of the Game Boy display. There's also Star Power, where you become invincible for a brief period of time. That's pretty much customary for every single Mario game. There is a Fire Flower here. And there is an interesting graphical element to the Fire Flower, because in Super Mario Land 2, similar kind of restriction as what we saw with the 1-Up Heart versus the 1-Up the Mushroom. 
when you get the fire flower, you stay the same size as what you would be if you had just picked up the super mushroom. So how do you know that you have firepower versus the versus just being a larger Mario? Because in the regular NES versions or the Super Nintendo version, you get colored a little bit differently. And on the Game Boy, you can't really do that. So if you pick up the fire flower in Mario Land 2, you will have a feather in your cap. The Game Boy can't display colors, but it can certainly display a couple of additional pixels. So that is how the team was able to distinguish between the Fire Flower and just traditional Super Mushroom uh, growth. Now, I do have a slight irritation with the way the game handles these power-ups, and there are a couple other power-ups. Particularly, there's the Bunny Ear power-up, which allows you to float through levels and kind of trivializes many of the levels. Two, we'll talk about that in a, in a minute or two. But just generally speaking, I do have a slight irritation with the power-up system. If you pick up any power-up, it will overwrite whatever your current power-up is. And that doesn't matter if the power-up you pick up is in a lower tier. So as an example, let's say you have firepower and you pick up a mushroom, a super mushroom. The firepower disappears and you then just become normal Super Mario. So even though the mushroom is a lower tier power, it replaces the fire flower. And I don't believe that's the way that has worked in in most, if not all, other Mario adventures. I, I have played pretty much every Mario game, and I don't recall off the top of my head where picking up a lower tier item would replace the upper tier item. I also know that most of the time, Mario Adventures are pretty smart in that once you have firepower, as an example, it's not going to throw the super mushroom at you. It's just going to give you an additional fire flower. So maybe there's some, some mechanic there that doesn't necessarily come across all the time. But I did find that a little bit irritating. When I found that out, when I was playing the game and I picked up a mushroom after I'd had firepower, and I was like, oh no, I don't want to lose that. So just one thing to keep in mind. Before we move into the more specific aspects of talking about the game with graphics and sound and all that good stuff, I do want to take a look at the back of the box because as you guys know, I love taking a look at the box for these games. I enjoy seeing how the teams marketed their games and how they were trying to sell the games to people because a lot of times around this time when we would go into a store, we wouldn't necessarily know what we were getting. It's not like we had the internet to look up gameplay videos, and sometimes we didn't even have a ton of coverage in magazines. So we kind of had to go off of what the box showed. If we were walking around a video game store and we saw a cool looking box, we might pick it up, flip it over, and read what is on the back of the box. And that was a core component of our overall buying decision. So for Super Mario Land 2, the back of the box says... Temper Tantrum Tyrant seizes Mario Land. In his greatest Game Boy adventure, Mario faces off against his evil rival Wario, who has captured Mario Land and turned it into his private playground. To toss Wario off his ill-gotten throne, Mario must search all new worlds for the six golden coins that unlock the gate to Mario's castle. A mob of monsters old and new seek to stop him. Along the way, through six zones, Mario can nab power mushrooms, superstars, and fire flowers for extra power. And if he eats the magic carrot, he'll turn into a high-flying hare. The battery pack saves your game in progress in this biggest Game Boy Mario adventure yet. 
And then there are a couple of screenshots of the game, and it does have another blurb that says it includes a battery backup, which we did not mention yet, but which which was a nice touch in that you could, and this was the first Mario Game Boy title, it's only the second one overall, but the first one that would include a battery backup where you can pick a file to save your progress to, very similar to what you saw in Super Mario Brothers 3, as well as Super Mario World. So that's what the back of the box said. And granted, with a Mario game, you kind of know what you're going to be getting into. Mario is a pretty well-known Uh, property. And even back then, Mario was a very well-known property. So I don't think anybody's going to look at this and think, oh, who's, who's Mario? But it is always interesting to see what the box says. So let's move into talking about the more specific elements of the game. We are going to start by looking at the graphics. These visuals are so so improved beyond the original. It is a bit zoomed in, but it's a reasonable facsimile of Super Mario World styled visuals. It looked really pleasing to the eye. The sprites were incredibly detailed despite not having any colors. It really popped on the screen, which is odd to say when you're talking about things that have literally no colors. It's literally a grayscale kind of one bit, two bit kind of experience. And it is It just looks good. It's very detailed pixel work in each of the sprites. All of the level graphics, all of the levels and the environments all looked similarly good. The characters' designs, they felt just like a Mario title. This felt like coming home. Super Mario Land 1 was a little bit different. Super Mario Land 2 felt like a full-fledged Mario adventure, albeit with some interesting additions. And I keep talking about the Jason Voorhees character with the hockey mask and the knife in his head. The only reason I keep talking about that is because it is so odd to me that that character existed in a Mario game where everything up to that point had been really cutesy kind of characters. And then you have this this, uh, hockey mask guy with a knife sticking out of his head. It was just definitely different than what had come before. Now, the overworld also looked pretty interesting and it drove you to want to explore. And there are some, a couple of secrets there are a couple of levels that I'll say are off the beaten path, not necessarily part of any of the individual zones that you just explore because it's there. And the overworld definitely makes it feel like a very inviting kind of experience. It's honestly just a really good looking game. And it's kind of dramatic how much better Game Boy games looked just a couple years after the console's release. And that happens a lot with with consoles in general, where uh, at launch, people are still trying to figure out how to get the most bang for your buck or the most power out of the system. And then over the next couple of years, they really figure out how to harness that technology to deliver something truly great. This is an example of how that evolution is absolutely prevalent or, or is very visible Just by looking at the graphics, the game is dramatically improved from its predecessor. Moving on to the sound and the music, this is actually an area where I feel like there was a little bit of a miss. That's not to say that the music or the sound effects weren't good, because they were. I think they were enjoyable and they were good as standalone kind of music or sound effects. It just felt a little bit, to me too divergent from what I think of when I think about Mario music. The original Super Mario Land, from my perspective, was much more memorable and in line with my expectations, and the music for that game was absolutely incredible. The music here is good, just didn't feel like Mario music. It just didn't feel, it didn't sound like Mario. 
to me. And I know that's an entirely subjective thing, but that was my impression as I was playing the game. I was like, okay, I mean, it sounds fine, but am I playing a Mario game? It just, it just had a little bit of a disconnect for me. Uh, if it wasn't associated with Mario, like if this was a game soundtrack for some unrelated Game Boy game, I don't think I would really have a complaint. The music from a technical perspective was well composed. It sounded good. The sound effects all sounded good. They were clear and crisp and they really came across nicely on the Game Boy speaker. But overall, it just didn't feel totally like a Mario experience, which, as we know, was actually one of the intentions behind its creation. So it seems like the team hit the mark. It's just for me, I would have much rather that mark been closer to a traditional Mario kind of auditory experience. Moving on to the narrative and story, this is a direct continuation of Super Mario Land. And we talked about this already a little bit, but just to summarize, Mario returns from his adventure in Sarasaland, where he had saved Princess Daisy, and he finds out that his castle, which, by the way, I guess Mario has a castle, is occupied by his longtime nemesis, Wario. The door to that castle is locked, and he needs to get six magical coins in order to unlock those doors. So Mario sets out to find those coins, each of which are held by a boss in the game world, and those bosses are associated with individual zones or lands that you'll have to navigate as you play the game. Once you find those coins, you can begin your assault on the castle in the hopes of recovering what is rightfully yours. So I actually enjoyed this storyline, and I know that in the past I've mentioned that for me, platformers don't really need a deep story and this isn't that deep of a story either, but I love, love, love the concept of introducing a direct nemesis to Mario. And I also love the fact that this particular journey isn't defined by saving a damsel in distress, but is instead focused on exacting revenge and recovering something of Mario's that was lost. I, generally speaking, I enjoy nemesis kinds of storylines. So this is probably something that's a very personal thing for me because I just enjoy those kind of stories, whether it's in TV, movies, video games. Anytime when you introduce a nemesis, that's kind of like the, the alter ego or the direct opposite of another character or of a good guy. I just love those kind of things. Like if you ever watched, I know this is a tangent, but if you ever watched Knight Rider, my favorite episode of Knight Rider is when Kit has to battle the evil kit, and I can't remember the character's name, the other car's name, but it was like the exact opposite of kit. I love that kind of stuff. And this game introduced Wario, which is basically like Mario's dark alter ego. I love that stuff. So I enjoyed the story. I enjoyed what they did with the narrative here. It's still not a deep story, but for a platformer and the fact that this brought us Wario and a future antagonist for Mario games for years and years to come, I loved it. I think it was great. Moving on to the playability and controls, this is a pretty standard Mario adventure. You walk and or run from side to side in each level. Sometimes you have to go up and down or, or jump up to different levels that might be outside of your immediate sight above you. Uh, you will, as you move around the game world, you have to jump on top of enemies to defeat them. You jump around on platforms. There is the very stereotypical Mario pipes that you get to slide into in different areas to reach different parts of the level. Now, the interesting thing here is that most of the pipes, and I don't know if there's any that are truly like a warp pipe, so to speak, 
because if I remember correctly, every time you go into a pipe, all that it does is it shifts the game screen either up or down, and it shows the part of the level that you've now entered into from those pipes, which I thought was actually a really nice touch as far as the overall level design. It made it feel like every level was a coherent, connected thing, whereas a lot of times in Mario games where when you go down a pipe, the screen doesn't scroll down and show you going down that pipe. It kind of flashes off and then flashes back on and you're in a new area so it truly feels like you're warping somewhere in mario land 2 it feels like you're just going down a pipe or going up a pipe and then the game the game screen slides up or down appropriately and you go to your new level so i actually enjoyed that i thought that was a nice touch that wasn't really replicated in a lot of the different mario games up to that point Um, i enjoyed the power-ups included in the game they provide a good amount of diversity as you play and the uh like i said the money move is a little overpowered but uh, that's fine i mean you know sometimes you hit a hard level anyway there's also the bunny uh, room or the bunny power up is the only way that i found to find a couple of the secret exits where you have to kind of fly across a level and, and get to those secret exits so that you can get to the special stages that have some additional power-ups so even though it makes things a little bit trivial It's also a very useful power-up in order to navigate some of the game world. I talked earlier about the spin move inherited from Super Mario World. This is here, I gotta say, it's probably not used quite as much as it could have been. It kind of feels like like an add-on, just cause kind of thing, but it's still there, and I'm still glad they included it. It's an extra nuance to the controls. It made the game a little bit more playable, but... I don't know that it was really used effectively. It was kind of an afterthought from my perspective. And and to that point, as I was navigating the game world, there were some sections that had areas blocked off that I honestly don't know how you reach. And I'm not saying that in a bad way. That's actually good because I believe that not everything should be handed to you. So having areas blocked off where you might have to give a little bit of extra effort or do a little bit of additional searching to try to find... I think that's actually a good thing. To a degree, it adds some replayability, and it also adds a little bit of mystery to the game world. So I think that was actually an interesting inclusion here. Or maybe I'm just not very observational, and I don't know uh, where to look for certain areas. As far as moving around, the game definitely felt better than Super Mario Land. It had much better inertia from a momentum and, and feeling perspective, though it still wasn't perfect there is still a lack of kind of forward momentum that you have to counteract when you when you're playing and press on the opposite direction on your control pad it wasn't nearly as bad as super mario land but it still didn't feel like a perfect mario experience at least to me Um, there were also some underwater sections in the game and they felt a little odd the controls there were a little bit strange The swim mechanics seemed like you couldn't repeatedly hit the swim button the way that you would be able to in the NES Super Mario games. So in the NES Super Mario games, you could basically just hammer on that swim button, and if you hammer fast, you'll swim swim up and fast and kind of keep moving across. In this one, it's almost like rather than just hammering the button, you have to have more of a timing-based swim, which is totally fine. I'm not saying that that is a bad design. What I am saying is that it doesn't feel like Mario. Mario, I'm used to just hammering that button. If I want to swim really fast or I want to swim up very quickly, I just hammer the button. It didn't feel like you could do that in this game. And maybe it's just because that the game world was so zoomed in and a little bit less visible or less 
available on any single screen that simply when you press that that jump button, which would otherwise act as a swim, you kind of pop out of the water anyway. But I didn't particularly enjoy the underwater swimming sections in this title. It felt like it was just a little bit divergent from what I expect when I think of underwater movement for Super Mario games in general. Otherwise, no real complaints on the playability and controls. It felt like a Mario title for the most part, other than the couple of critiques that we already talked about. So how did the game feel to play overall? For the most part, I think the game felt great to play. It was a vast improvement over the original Super Mario Land in every possible way. That said, I do have one major critique for the overall experience, and this all has to do with difficulty. Most of the game, if not 98% of the game, is pretty darn easy. And I don't say that as though it's a bad thing, but just a recognition. Most of the game is pretty darn easy. The issue is everything feels fairly similar difficulty-wise, the entire world. And you would expect that because the entire world is open. You can explore the world at any point, in any given set of times. You can explore wherever you want to go, except for the final level, of course. But any world, any world that you want to navigate to, you can go immediately from the very beginning of the game and progress through their levels. The thing is, once you beat all of those worlds and you have your six coins and you're able to go into Wario's castle, the game becomes much more difficult. The final level of the game is ridiculously difficult in comparison to the rest of the game. And it's not that the level is particularly hard, though it is. It's it's just the comparison between the majority of the game and that final experience is just not in line. It's not it's just a spike. It's a ridiculous difficulty spike. It's almost like a walk in the park becomes a sprint through the desert. That's what it feels like because when you get into that or let's take a step back. Most of the levels up to that point had a mid-level checkpoint. They were fairly well-designed as far as enemy placements and overall flow of the levels. But the final level has no checkpoints, and it is long. And some of the platforming sections are pretty difficult. And the thing is that if you happen to lose all your lives, you lose all of the coins you've collected so far. So you have to go back and beat all of the bosses again before you can reattempt the castle. And the bosses aren't that hard, so it's not like it's a it's a ridiculous thing to ask, but it's still kind of time-consuming. It still adds some additional time there. And the fact that the difficulty spike was so severe means you're probably going to lose some lives in the process because you're just not ready for it. You're not ready for that level of spike. To put it into perspective, when I went into the final level, I had almost 30 lives banked. I had gone to the casino thing. I won 20 lives on the casino spin after spending 999 coins. I had accumulated some additional lives just from playing the game in general. So I had around 30 lives going into that final level. I used all of them up and then some before I figured out the best way to deal with the castle. Though I never fully died, I never absolutely lost all of the coins and had to redo the bosses. What I ended up doing was leaving the castle whenever I got really low on lives and do a little bit of farming. So you can go back to any levels that you played. It's not like you can't go back to them. You can go back to them and you could farm some lives. So I did that and then went back to the castle and eventually figured out the best way through the level. 
It's just that the castle is a really big bump in difficulty. As a singular level, it is definitely not as difficult as some levels in other Mario games, but it is very much a divergence from this game's traditional levels. Also, I do want to say, just once again on the difficulty side, if you manage to get the bunny ears, you will trivialize any level that you're in. You just jump and float through the whole thing. You don't even have to look at the level. You just float across the sky, which I guess is good if you're looking for an easy way through some of the levels, but it kind of removes a little bit of the experience because you don't get to experience the levels if you're just floating through the sky above all the platforming that you'd be expected to navigate. Despite the almost too easy difficulty until it becomes significantly almost too hard in comparison, the game was really a great experience. It just, it felt really good to play even today. So what is our verdict? Where does the game sit? First, I want to say that this absolutely improved upon its predecessor dramatically in every way. I cannot stress enough how much better this was than the original Super Mario Land. I've played both relatively close to each other. It's only been around a month or so in between when I played each one. And that makes the improvements feel even more noticeable because it's fresh in my mind. I remember what Super Mario Land felt like, and I was able to compare directly to what Super Mario Land 2 feels like. And I wasn't even intending, by the way, to do an episode in Super Mario Land 2 until I played the game. And I thought to myself, wow, this is so much better. Not to say that Super Mario Land 1 was bad, but this is so much better. I felt the need to talk about it. So that was why I decided to do an extra episode on Super Mario Land 2. Um, This really was one of those games where a lot of the elements came together to create what is probably one of the best platform titles on the Game Boy. Its graphics, sound, the general gameplay design still holds up today to create a truly fun, albeit still a relatively short experience. Despite some of that uneven difficulty I was talking about, I truly believe that Super Mario Land 2 deserves a spot in our pantheon of classic gaming. It is a title that should be experienced by anyone who has even a passing interest in platforming titles, and it's one of those games that, while not perfect, is still a worthwhile experience even 30 years after its release. was our episode on Super Mario Land 2. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing or give advice, comments, feedback, suggestions for future episodes, or just talk classic gaming and classic technology, I would love to hear from you. And there are a couple ways you can reach out. I have a Twitter account with the handle at ClassicGamingT. I also have an email address, which is ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com. So if you'd like to have a discussion or just exchange some notes or just kind of chat. Let me know. I am definitely interested in hearing what you think. Before we sign off for the week, I want to mention that our next episode is going to be focused on the Terminator, specifically the 16-bit versions of the Terminator. So we're actually going to be looking at a few different versions of the Terminator next week. I'm excited to dive into that. I hope you are as well. And if you have any particular fond memories or not so fond memories of any of those Terminator experiences, feel free to write in. I'd like to know what you're thinking. 
At the same time, I recognize you're probably listening to this podcast on any number of podcast engines or services. So if you feel so inclined, I'd love if you could leave me a review. Let me know how I'm doing. Uh, This is not about bolstering star counts or gathering a bunch of five-star reviews, though if that happens, awesome. That means that we're doing something right. This is really all about gathering feedback and trying to understand what we need to do to deliver the best possible podcast for everybody that may be listening. I am under no illusions that things are absolutely perfect. The only way, though, to continue to improve is to get that feedback and make sure that I am creating the best possible content for everybody out there. So please feel free to leave a review. No requirement, obviously, but I'm definitely interested in knowing your thoughts. We are continuing to grow, continuously continuing to grow, and we are continuing to develop the community around this podcast, and I'm excited for what the future is going to hold. We'll be back in around a week with our next episode focused on The Terminator. Until then, remember, sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone.